today we're talking about Romans, and we're in a section that hangs together over two chapters, chapters uh, 14 and 15, um, really fit together, dealing with this issue of the weak and the strong and how they get together. Uh, Next week, we're going to get to the second half of chapter 15, which is some travel plans for Paul. Then we're going to get into chapter 16, which is um, some personal greetings, and we're going to deal with all the stuff that's going on in those those chapters. But today, uh, we're finishing up this section that covers these two chapters on how, how people with differing opinions, not doctrinally or morally, but just how they apply things, how they get along with one another. The summary that I gave last week of chapter 14 is basically this. Pursue peace and edification. Um, edify, stupid. It's just it's that easy. When you're, when you're relating to somebody else, your thought should not be, how can I straighten them out? It's how can I build them up? That's what edification means. It's literally the word for building a building. How do you build them up? Peaceful relations and mutual edification should be our main goal. So if I have a different dif- disagreement, um, I want to listen. I want to see where they are. And then I want to say, okay, what's my next step for us to peacefully get along and build one another up so that we're strengthened in our convictions and our awareness of grace and we grow together. Um, and so when it, when it comes to doctrinal or moral issues, we're not asking you to give, but when it comes to applicational issues, that's where we need to have some room. Um, in a totally unrelated um, document that I got today, I, I came across this quote from Thomas Jefferson. He said this, and I liked it. In matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. Uh, I think that's really good. <laughs> um, in matters of just how you're going to apply this, um, uh, go with the current, go with the flow, go, bend a little bit. But in matters of principle, in matters of doctrine, and in matters of morals, where, where the Bible speaks clearly, stand like a rock. And that's really what we want to do as a church, what we should do as a community. This is a complex passage, and so I've got a lot of resources out there, and they were out there last week. I just didn't mention them. Some resources out there. A real clear one by John Stott uh, that talks about um, how these weak and strong people get along, and and he really defines the categories really well. Um, A real practical one on just how to offer grace to somebody by Chuck Swindoll. Um, one very realistic one about how hard it can be to pursue unity and get to it, and then one that's personally challenging uh, from Chuck Swindoll that basically is, is asking you, in these encounters, do you have room to grow? Or do you just look at it arrogantly like, how's this other person going to grow? How can you personally engage with it? So some great resources out there. I want to encourage you to take advantage of them. And then there's one other resource that I want to highly, highly recommend. Um, This is a summary of the book up to this point by Doug Moo. Um, A lot of people would say, because what Paul does from this point on is he deals with his travel plans and personal greetings, that this is kind of the end of the book. It's the end of his regular argument. And and Doug Moo does a great job summarizing where we've gone up to this point. And I want to highlight one thing that he says, while I encourage you to read the entire article. It's posted online, and you can get it at the Connection Center. But in it, he says this. We must read Romans in such a way that we focus on both transformation of the individual and formation of the community. God wants to form, God wants to form people transformed by the gospel into communities that reflect the values of the gospel. 
vertical reconciliation with God must lead to horizontal reconciliation with one another. I like the emphasis, and he, he carries it through this whole article, that, that there is something very individual about what happens in the book of Romans. You, you need to engage with these awareness of gospel truths and awareness of our sinfulness and, and the provision that is, is made through Christ and the provision of the Holy Spirit for our sanctification and the trustworthiness of God and, and how we personally apply that. There's something very individual about it. There's also something very communal about this, about how um, these individuals are being formed into a community. And, and I'll remind you, it's so fitting for what we're talking about in these chapters. The community of the church at Rome had been really divided. There were a number of things that, that contributed to that, but it had kind of settled out along the lines of Jewish Christians who had received Christ. They saw Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and, and they saw him as their Savior. And Gentile Christians who grew up without that background. And what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to say, the gospel transforms us in a way that unites us. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you have um, a freedom to live in grace in one way, or a conscience that really convicts you in another way, the thing that unites us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's not just, okay, you got the gospel straight, you're headed to heaven, everybody great? It is, no, we, we get the gospel straight, and that is what unites us. And, and it leaves room for us to have some disagreements on some specific applications, and so, again, I just want to highlight the, the, the book of Romans and my purpose for preaching the book of Romans was so that, yes, individuals would come to understand the significance of the gospel, but that that awareness of the gospel would unite us. And we could say, you know, we have a lot of differences in a lot of different things, but we are united around the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're a community that is passionate, that says, that's why we get here. That's why we show up to sing songs of worship, because he's worthy of our worship. We're not here just to check off the box because it, it, it somehow makes God happy with me. We are here because we are worshiping the God of the universe who sent his son, and, and that son who died for us and left us the gift of the Holy Spirit to motivate us. And that binds us together as a community, and it also binds us together as a community that is committed to getting the gospel out. So, again, the book of Romans, as we get here to the end of it, I think it's such an appropriate time to, to highlight. This is about individual transformation, but it's also about community formation that we are united, and we're united in smaller groups, but united in a, in a much bigger group. Uh, specifically here, though, in chapter 15, Paul is dealing with the weak and the strong. And the flow of the argument I introduced last week, in the early part of chapter 14, he says, don't judge one another. It's not your job. God is going to judge. So don't judge one another. And in fact, trying to figure out how everybody is, is wrong or right or agrees with you, that's not the point. The point should be to edify to build one another up. And that's really the theme that goes through all of it. The focus of chapter 15 is really going to be accepting one another. So don't be a judge. Look and say, how do I build this person up? How do I help them grow? Um, and, and often that's not getting in their face. Sometimes it is. Um, but how do you accept somebody and help them grow at the same time. That's what Paul is going to talk about. Just to review very quickly, the strong and the weak in Romans 14 and 15. 
The strong were mostly Gentiles who felt like grace frees them to not live by these Jewish standards. They understood that Christ was Jewish and there's this Jewish heritage, but they understood it in this way, I think. Yes, the Old Testament really pointed to Jesus with prophecies and predictions and pictures, but now that he's here, that's been all fulfilled. We don't have to keep doing all of that stuff. Meanwhile, the the weaker group, which was mostly Jewish, was basically looking at it and said, boy, we've grown up with all these things. We're going to keep doing them because they're very helpful. Now, I do think there were some Jews, like Paul, who was part of the stronger group. My suspicion is there were some Gentiles who kind of liked all of the rituals of the Old Testament, and they liked all those feasts and festivals and those kind of things. There was a little bit of a mixture, but primarily it went this way. To, To make that one level a little bit more abstract... The strong people are people whose conscience allows them to do something which makes some other people feel uncomfortable. Others wouldn't apply it that way, and they feel free to do this. Um, The weak are those people whose conscience convicts them not to do something that other people feel comfortable doing. Um, I've got to be careful with with how I give examples, because I may give examples of something I felt comfortable doing that maybe somebody here is just like, I can't tolerate that. Um, let me give you, I will give you an example. It's a little risky. Um, I could show you a picture of me preaching in the Czech Republic. Anybody got a problem with that? At a Catholic church. Hmm. Would you make that choice? I was invited to speak at a Catholic church by a Catholic priest who I've met over a number of years and um, loves the Lord. A lot of things I disagree with, but in a Catholic church with no heat in January, and it was about 20 degrees in there, which I frankly enjoyed more than today right now, um, I preached at a Catholic church. Mm. Would you have made that choice of application of using your gifts to preach in a Catholic church or not? Um, we can talk about that, but this is one of those things that I think there's probably a lot of people who would just go, Ken, how in the world could you preach at a Catholic church? Are you now, you know, committed to the Pope? No. You know, what I was hoping was I'd be able to present the gospel really clearly to these people because I was a unique person and they introduced me as Ken, the Protestant. (laughs) Um, uh, (laughs) and, uh, I felt like it was a great opportunity, but, hmm. How do you handle those kind of matters of application? This isn't a doctrinal thing. I didn't sign on to their doctrine. Um, But this is one of the things that we talk about. Um, Chuck Swindoll tries to give some clarity. The stronger people who have risen above the drag of lists, people-pleasing, and performance-based righteousness. The strong know deep down that they are righteous because of the Father's grace, the Son's gift of eternal life, and the Spirit's indwelling presence. They rest confidently in their eternal security, knowing that they have nothing to prove and everything to give. It's the strong person. Now, obviously, Paul identifies with the strong, and we're presenting the strong as the more positive person. But the problem with the, the strong person who understands grace and understands it all comes down to God's grace, Christ's sacrifice, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. If we're united on those things, we believe the Word of God, then, then we are all together. Now, we can minister in places where everybody doesn't agree, agree with that, but I'm the representative of someone who agree, does agree with that. Um, I mean, that's, we could talk about some specifics, but the thing that unites us is 
is that we understand the grace of God. And everybody's kind of growing in how they understand that. The danger with the strong person is that the strong person bullies the weak person. The strong person can, can push their convictions on somebody else in a way that, that forces them and pushes them to say, oh, uh, I'm, I'm wrong. And, and you, you need to leave, as Chuck Swindoll says in one of the articles, room for growth. Let people's growth take place in the, in the way God wants it to. And so rather than, than judging and bullying, this passage tells, we, tells us that we need to be pursuing edification. And again, that's again the theme that, that showed up in chapter 14. It's again here. Bearing with one another promotes edification. When I bear with you, and that's not just tolerate you, but it's when I, when I help bear your burden and kind of understand where you're at and pick it up and help you carry it to move on towards maturity, that promotes the building up of the body. He says it this way. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Don't just do what you want to do and push it on them. Each of us should please our neighbor for their good to build them up. It's not be a people pleaser. It's, it's do what is the best thing to help build their faith and help them grow. How do you build them up? That's our word edify. How do you edify them? That should be your first, um, your first push. I look at it and it's not how do I get them to agree it's how do I get them to grow? And, and, and you, you tolerate, you bear one another's burdens. There's a couple important words here, but first Doug Moose says, to be sure there are fights that need to be fought, um, um, fights that need to be fought. Most of all, we need to fight our battles in a Christian spirit. If you're going to fight, sometimes there are some things to fight over, but even when you're fighting and saying this is important, you don't do it in this dominating, cutting down, destroying spirit. You say, we, we may disagree, and this is a big disagreement, but let's do this in a Christian way. How do, I, how do I even in those situations build them up? Because he uses these interesting terms. The, the term for the strong person um, is the dunatos. It's the word that we often talk about in the New Testament, the uh, dunamis. It's, it's transforming power. It's not explosive power. That's, that comes from a later usage of the word. This is transforming power. It's the person who's, who's being transformed by this power of grace, and they're able to, to, empowered by grace, say, I'm free to live my Christian life without all of the rules and the regulations. Interestingly, the, the weak person is the adunatas, the unempowered person. They haven't been empowered by grace up to this point to be able to free themselves of this checklist of things I've got to do to please God. Rather than saying, God loves me, he loves me so much, how could I do anything except live for him? It's responding to the grace of God rather than legalistically trying to figure out how to get God's grace to be applied to you. Um, it, it's a very different approach. And what he says is to bear one another's burdens. Literally, the, the word is to, to pick up with your hands. It's, it's to help somebody hold their burden. It's a burden that one person can't carry. There's another word for bearing a burden um, that Paul uses in Galatians 6 where he says, bear your own burden. It's bear the burden you can bear. But this is bear one another's burden. This is a big burden. It's something bigger than, than one person can bear. Somebody needs help to grow in all of this. So his, his first deal is edify one another. Don't be, please your neighbor, get along with them. Figure out what is the best thing to do to help them grow. And then what he's going to do is he's going to say, this is exactly what Christ did. 
Um, Christ could have showed up and just said, I'm the righteous standard. I never sin. Everybody jump in line, do like me. He doesn't do that. What he does is he, he lays his life down for us. He's the greatest example of doing this. Um, John Stott says, why should we edify others? Was Christ didn't please himself. Christ is the way to united worship is when we get united around Christ, that pulls us together. Christ success accepts us. And Christ became a servant. All these things are true of Christ. And so we should live that way as well. So he's going to move on. And here's his example is Christ. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the, ins- the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Christ didn't please himself. And then what he does, is he quotes Psalm 69. This is not part of his three quotes. That's going to come later. He quotes Psalm 69, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Christ went ahead and took the insults. And and we know in a bigger sense, it's our sins. Christ took his sins. He bore our sins. Um, And we need to be willing to put up with, to bear the shortcomings of other people. Where where people maybe aren't as far along in understanding grace as you are, you, you embrace that and you go, oh, that's okay. I can handle that. I can limit my freedom, what he said last week. I can limit my freedom so that we can get along. And this is what Christ has done. The insults of those who insult God have fallen on him. Um, And and he bore that. He didn't please himself. Um, Old commentator C.E.B. Cranfield says, This simple statement sums up with eloquent uh, reticence both the meaning of the incarnation and the character of Christ's earthly life. This is what he did. He took on the insults. He took our sins. He didn't please himself. He did what was best for us. Um, very often, we just simply call that love. <laughs> Whenever Paul wanted to uh, illustrate the quality of selflessness, he pointed to the example of Jesus Christ. That's what he does in, in Philippians chapter 2 when he's trying to say, be selfless. He goes, like Christ. Um, Now, he's going to give some other examples to support that. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. He basically says, you look at the Old Testament, and you're going to see people doing this. You're you're going to see people in the Old Testament who put others in front of themselves. And all of those examples are, are, are there to say, put others in front of yourselves. It's going to pay off. Maybe not in this life. Maybe it's in the life to come when you put others first. And in, in quoting Psalm 69, he's, he's quoting one of the most popular verses to apply to Christ in the Old Testament. Other than Psalm 22, this Psalm 69 is the passage that is used most frequently to refer to Christ. Uh, Tom Schreiner says, Psalm 69 is fitting here because it focuses on the passion of Jesus Christ. It is evident that this psalm was widely used in the New Testament to interpret and explain the death of Jesus. And then just look at all of the 14 places it's quoted. Everybody understood Psalm 69 is referring to Jesus. So here's this Old Testament passage that is written to say, yes, like Jesus. Frank Thielman says, Paul implies that If anyone had been entitled to please himself, it would have been Christ. The anointed, which is the word Christos, king of God's people. The Messiah, however, is the sort of king who did not exploit his power for his own advantage, but instead was willing to suffer in order to help others. If anybody had the the right to say, go my way, (laughs) 
Do it my way. Jesus had the right. He was perfect. Um, he's the second member of the tree. He's God. But even Jesus gave us the example of, of laying his life down. Doing what is best to help the other person get closer to God. That's what Jesus did. That's what we should do. We, we limit our freedom. We live in our authority. Even, even though you may understand, I don't have to do this. I'm free to do a certain thing. Um, but I'm, I'm going to limit that if it would offend a certain person, if it would cause them to stumble, if it would um, hinder their spiritual growth. And the idea of this is that it, this all brings glory to God. This is, this is something when, when we're working together like this, the ultimate end is help that person grow, be unified as a body, and all of that brings glory to God. And, and the point's going to be made here. The, the point is, is all three of those, really. The point is helping the person grow, uniting us as a body, but ultimately pointing towards, and that brings glory to God. Um, John Harvey says, bearing with, one another, bearing with one another's weaknesses promotes edification, follows Christ's example, and it brings glory to God. It, it, this is the summary of what, where we've gone so far. So here's what he says. There's a mentality you have to have. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude, the same mentality of mind toward each other that Jesus Christ had, so that with one mind and with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, May God give you endurance and encouragement to do this, because you know what? It isn't easy. It doesn't come naturally. It's not once and done. If you're having to um, deal with someone who's who's growing in grace, and they're still living in that kind of works-oriented lists, um, oppressed by God because they're worried that that God's going to give up on them, if you're dealing with somebody like that, it's not just once and done. Oh, hey, I'm tolerating you. You good to grow now? It takes endurance. It takes encouragement. You've got you've to stick with it. It's a long path to get you there. And again, he, he points back to Jesus Christ is the example of that. Jesus Christ is the example of being patient with other people. Um, you don't know exactly what's going on with them. Be patient enough to hear uh, where they're coming from. What motivated Christ to endure the indignity and death, taking the insults, Psalm 69, taking the insults that were due for us, he took those insults. What motivated him to do that was zeal for God's glory. He wanted God to be glorified in all of that. Christ is our example. (laughs) Do what Christ does. Put other people first, even if it causes you to have to limit the power, limit the freedoms that you have. He's going to go on and he's going to talk about applying mercy in this. Accepting one another follows the example because Christ accepted us and he, he had mercy on us this way. Uh, Paul uses Christ's example not merely to demonstrate that the weak and the strong in Rome is how they ought to act toward one another, but also to make a point about the significance of Christ for all of history. Christ is the example for all of history of how we relate to one another and how God gets glory when we lay our lives down for one another. Jesus' death is the supreme example, Tom Schreiner says, of one who forsakes his own pleasure to advance the honor of God. He forsakes his own pleasure, his own rights, even though he had more power, more authority than we will ever have. 
He laid that all down for the benefit of other people. And this is the principle here. Um, Don't judge other people. Figure out how to build them up and accept them and engage in a way that will help them grow. He says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. In order to bring praise to God, when, when we get along, it brings praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The point here I need to highlight is he's saying this puts you together, Jews and Gentiles. He became a servant of the Jews so that the promises made to the patriarchs that all the nations will be blessed in a descendant of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is the passage I would go to. He's going to go to some other passages. I I, I toyed with putting Genesis 12, 1 through 3 up here because it fits so perfectly, but it's not the passages he chooses, so I'm going to go with his passages. But the highlighted thing I want you to see is he's, he's saying, look, Jesus Christ is what puts the Jews and the Gentiles together, and that brings glory to God. Christ became the servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. He did this for, for God, so that the promises made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He's putting two people who are coming from very different perspectives, putting them together for the glory of God, united in Christ. Um, and this, by the way, we're here at the end of the gospel. This is chapter 15. We've just got one more ch- chapter left of his explanation of the gospel. Let me show you how this has been the theme throughout. Go back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, he starts off and he says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He starts it in chapter 1. This is all about bringing Jews and Gentiles together, united in Christ, united in this gospel that is, as he develops it through the book, three chapters, we're all equally sinners, Jews, Gentiles, all of us, we're all sinners. Jesus Christ is our only hope. We find justification, peace with God, salvation, All of that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And not only that, he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us grow, chapters 6, 7, and 8. God can be trusted, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so live this unity out. That's what he says in this book. And he starts it that way and he ends it this way. Accept one another just just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become the servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He's bringing Jews and Gentiles together. Doug Moose says, unity is not the ultimate goal. It's it's a step along the way. Unity is simply one stage on the way to the church's final purpose to praise God. Only when believers cease to quarrel and speak with one heart and with one voice will they be able to praise God as they should. When we are united in Jesus Christ and we are united enough to say we may have a lot of differences on whether this should happen or this should happen, whether we should meet this way or meet this way, but what unites us is Jesus Christ. And when we're united in Jesus Christ, then we get together and say, you know what, all the other differences go away because we're singing praise to God here. We have come to praise him. We've come to hear his word taught. And that's what unites us. 
Tom Schreiner says, it would be extraordinarily easy to conclude that unity is the ultimate purpose of Romans 14 to 15. But verse 6 reveals, however, that Paul's prayer for unity among Jews and Gentiles so that they will worship together in harmony. It's unity so that worship can take place because God deserves and ultimately will get worship from every tongue, tribe, and nation. How much more should he get worship from all of us together with all of our different opinions about all the things we can have opinions about? But we should be unified in Jesus Christ. Now he's going to go and support this from the Old Testament because he's making the argument that Jesus is the supreme example of laying your life down for somebody else. And he said, Christ is the example, Christ is the example. And the Jews may be able to say, oh, well, yeah, but that's some new thing. He's going to show this is not new, and he's going to go to all three sections. As it is written, now he's going to quote four different passages. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations, in him Gentiles will hope. I mean, do you see his emphasis is the Gentiles are a part of this, but let me put it, the Gentiles are a part of this, and I'm proving it to you from the Jewish scriptures. Four passages, and interestingly, there's one from the law, one from the writings, one from the prophets. (laughs) Remember how the Jewish uh, Bible is all arranged? Law, writings, prophets. He takes one from each one. He says the whole thing. Don't matter where you go in the Jewish writings, you drop down anywhere in there. It talks about how, yes, God's working the Jews and he's working through the Jews, but he's doing that so he can bring the Gentiles ultimately in so that all of them will praise God. Frank Thielman summarizes it this way. God had promised Israel he would restore them to full fellowship with himself. And he had described that restoration as part of bringing all the nations on the earth together to worship him. This, God's not just the God of the Jews. God's just using the Jews to unite all the nations of the earth to worship him by having Jesus Christ come through a king who was Jewish. But he's not just some random Jewish guy. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's the person who died for our sins and unites everyone in praise and worship. The united worship of Jews and Gentiles in Rome, orchestrated by Christ himself, is part of the fulfillment of this universal divine plan. And the united worship of Jews and Gentiles in Conway, and mask wearers and not mask wearers in Conway, and liberals and conservatives in Conway. And um, you put the list out there. (laughs) All of the things that could divide us, what unites us, is what God has been up to through the whole Old Testament, what Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection that unites us to be a community that praises God. And folks, that's a a beautiful thing because loving one another results in joy and peace and hope. It it actually has a benefit. We, we, We end up being in a place that's like, yeah, that's a good place to be. Rather than just fighting for your own position. Here's how he says it. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Christ accomplishes this, but the Spirit empowers this. The indwelling Spirit that you have is what empowers you to be able to give up your sense of right and power and, and 
assuredness of you understand it right to lay it down for another person so that they can grow. It doesn't mean you have to stop behaving that way. It's just you don't put it in somebody else's face. The God of hope. A new wonderful title for the Lord. That's how Alan Ross sees this. The God of hope. Did you know? May the God of hope. Um, Earlier, he was the God of encouragement. Now he's the God of hope. May he fill you. And and that transforms us. When when we get this, it actually feels good. When you love someone well, you, you lay your life down for them. It actually feels good. Particularly when you get united in Christ. And what it means is you can go, you know what? We differ on a lot of things. But here's one place where we are unified. John Harvey says, following Christ's example of acceptance brings glory to God and results in hope, joy, and peace. I mean, that's just what the passage says. So where where am I going to land this? There's a couple ways to land. First of all, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Stop judging, the first part of Romans 14. Build one another up. Accept one another, just like Christ accepted you. And use that acceptance to say, we're all together in this to bring glory to God. Specifically, some takeaways. Prioritize building up one another. That should be your priority. Not getting it right and straightening other people out. Again, edify, stupid. When it comes back down to it, the thing you got to do is figure out, how can I help a person grow? How can I build them up? Pray for endurance in that, because that's not always an easy process, is it? Fill in the blank parenting. You're trying to help them grow, and they're young, and they don't understand you have authority and understand freedoms that they don't. It's like parenting, and it requires endurance and courage and restraint sometimes. And enjoy the benefits of other-centered living. 